Welcome, welcome, welcome to my podcast, Leaving Religion and Those We Leave Behind. I am your host, Amanda Joy Loveland, and as always, I am so thrilled to be here with you today. And I'm excited to share with you my next guest, who was a former Jehovah's Witness. And I love that we're branching out and sharing different stories and having different perspectives and different wisdom that's being brought into these episodes. It's truly, truly a gift. And I'm so grateful that I get to facilitate this. How awesome is this? And before we dive in, I want to remind you that I have a speaker symposium coming up in April, and this is a Lean Into Your Light speaker symposium. And I have five beautiful speakers along with myself that will be spending the day with you and assisting you in really stepping into those places within you and leaning more and more into all that you are. And this is April 24th in Highland, Utah. It is an in-person event only. So this is for my Utah locals. Head over to my website, amandajoyloveland.com forward slash lean in to grab your tickets. Tickets are $149 for the day. And that does include lunch. So it's a great, great price. And you'll want to get your ticket today before they sell out. If you are not on my email list, I highly, highly encourage you, would encourage you to go get on my email list. I have several events coming up and another retreat that I'll be announcing here soon. For those of you who are writers and feel like you have a book within you that you are not quite sure how to get it out, how to share it, where to even start, I am co-facilitating a retreat with my beautiful publisher, Kira Polson. And we haven't announced this retreat yet. So here's your little teaser. This is coming up in May. So jump over to my website, get on my email list. I'll put the link in the show notes below and make sure you're on that list so that you can be one of the first to know this will sell out quickly. Um, So there just a little teaser to make sure you are on my email list. And with all of that, let's dive in to my next podcast interview with Cindy. Well, welcome, Cindy. I am so excited to sit down with you. And one of the reasons why I'm really excited is because I don't know much about Jehovah's Witnesses. And so this is really most of the, I don't know if you know this, but most of my episodes have been former Mormons. And that's because that's what I, I was. And so naturally that's what I've gravitated towards. And now we're starting to branch out into other religions and people who've left other religions because I think it's really our stories are more alike than we realize. And I think that there's beauty and wisdom that we can gain from all walks of life. So I I'm agree. so happy you said yes, and that we get to meet and get to know each other. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Um, you know, initially I did the same thing and I focused on just people who were leaving Jehovah's Witnesses, but I also in doing that met other people from other religions. And it's kind of eerie to find out how similar they are. They're all same, same, but different, right? Because it's all mind control. It's all about control and it just has little subtle differences, Mm -hmm. but the effects on the people that are in the religion and try to leave are very much the same. Yeah, And so, um, I met, our mutual friend, because we both share stories with, you know, back and forth between the Mormon group and the Jehovah's Witness group. And, you know, I used to feel happy to be a Jehovah's Witness until I found out you guys couldn't drink coffee the whole time. (laughs) And I was like, at least I got to drink coffee. (laughs) You're like, I thought I had it bad. (laughs) Exactly. 
exactly. as, I, and, as I'm drinking my coffee right now. <laughs> and, and the strangest thing for me was the underwear thing that oh. you guys had. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's really weird. But then, you know, sharing my story with some of the people that I got to know who were Mormon or Scientology or, or whatever, they're like, wow, you guys did. That. That's weird. We're, we're glad we didn't have to do that. Right. <laughs> so, wow. It's just kind of funny to reflect yeah. back now. Right. Yeah, it is really interesting. So were you born into being a Jehovah's Witness? So I was about a year and a half old when my parents decided to convert. So I wasn't born into it, but I didn't know anything else because I was so young when they converted over. And believe it or not, they were someone that knocked on their door, which is the typical thing that people know about Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Is they come to your door and bring their pamphlets and their tracks and or they stand at the train station now or, or whatever it is they do with street corner. But my parents were converted by someone who made that knock on their door hmm. and they're still in that religion. Oh, really? now. So, yes. So growing up in that religion, how was it for you? You know, early on, you think that your life is the same as everybody else's and you really don't know any different. So you just kind of go along with the flow. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was probably in, you know, like fifth or sixth grade, getting into middle school, you really start to notice that you're different than other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to associate with people outside of our religion, except to go to school or to go to work. Is that normal? That is is how they typically do things is they Mm -hmm. isolate you, right? They don't want you to be out talking to other people because then you might get a clue, really. So, uh, <clears throat> even the adults that's limited, um, limited contact with people outside your local congregation or other Jehovah's witnesses, mm-hmm. unless it was work related or school related. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I started to get older and I didn't get to celebrate birthday parties or play sports or, um, celebrate holidays. And I became more aware that that's what other people were doing that's when I noticed that my life was different than others. Yeah. So um, once I made that connection, it was an uncomfortable situation because whenever there was someone's birthday and the kids would bring in cupcakes or candy or whatever, and people are going to have a birthday party, we had to leave the room. Really? um, You know, when, When people saluted the flag and said the Pledge of Allegiance in the beginning of the day, things that most people think are normal, we couldn't stand. We had to remain seated because we didn't show our loyalty to a religion or, I mean, a a country or a man. That was not acceptable. Will you tell me, because I, again, I'm not familiar hardly at all. There's only one person in my life that I know that is a Jehovah's Witness, and I I don't really know much about the religion, the belief system, what the structure is mm-hmm. like, or what the logic is behind it. So this is all that I'm actually really curious to understand a little bit. Do you mind kind of sharing a little of that? Sure. I will share. Now I will tell you, I have been out over 35 years, so wow. I don't have my finger on the pulse of their, you know, today's teachings, but overall teaching really hasn't changed that much. Um, they are run by a governing body. New York, and that governing body is believed to um, get the messages from God 
and they pass that along to the, the congregation. And they are the only ones that have that direct connection. And so they um, filter it down to, you know, there's like district overseers and then there's presiding overseers and then there's local elders and then there's ministerial servants below the elders. Mm. Uh, Women do not have any teaching role. Um, They're there to support and clean and, you know, knock on doors and, and support everything, but but they are not allowed to do any preaching from the platform or um, have any type of a, a leadership role in the church. We're more mm. there to, you know, have children and support the husband and and help spread the good news and and the word, help other people learn. Um, but there's no other role for women. Um, women and children were pretty much seen and and not heard. Mm. Um, the little boys were groomed to become, you know, leaders in the church if they um, did things, but but women were not. So um, some of their basic teachings is they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe that Jehovah is God and that Jesus Christ is his son. He came to earth um, to kind of show us the way and, and to die to uh, save us. Um, they believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, but not as in the Trinity, they believe the Holy Spirit is more a force that supports God and and Jesus and will shed light to the governing body on on mm. teachings or truths that come about. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe that they are the only ones that have the real truth, and that if you aren't a Jehovah's Witness, comes, which you know they take a lot of the Bible as literal, especially the Book of Revelation when it talks about. Uh, the coming of Armageddon. That is something that they take literally. Um, and with everything going on right now in the world, this is another time that they're saying, oh, well, it's the time is now, even though they've predicted that at least five other times and they were <laughs> wrong I'm here, they're still hanging on to that. Um, and so in their mind, what will happen is if you are not a Jehovah's Witness and Armageddon comes, you're going to die in Armageddon. Hmm. And they don't believe in heaven or hell. They believe that you're just dead. Um, and if you happen to be a Jehovah's witness and you're in good standing and you've done everything correct, then you get to survive Armageddon and you'll live forever Hmm. in a paradise earth. The earth will be recreated into the garden of Eden that Adam and Eve started out in, Hmm. and they'll live in harmony with each other and, you know, have the animals will live in harmony. Everybody will be, you know, wonderful and happy and, and the, it's not going to be like it is now where everybody has to work. It would be just a big communal living and people would just love one another. Mm-hmm. And um, if you had been a Jehovah's Witness and you died, um, you would be resurrected and you would come back to live oh, okay. on that paradise earth. So that's the way they keep you living that way. Even if their predictions of when Armageddon is going to come fail, you want to make sure that you're leading your life perfectly up until your death so that you can become resurrected and live in that paradise earth. Mm. Um, and, and the caveat to not believing in heaven and hell, the way most Christian religions believe in heaven and hell is they do believe that a specific number of 144,000 people will make it to heaven and they will help rule over the garden with 
Christ and his angels and all the archangels and Mm. Jehovah um, over the people that do reside on the paradise earth, that 144,000, which they can never tell you whether that 144,000 has been reached, how many are left. Um, They have no way of vetting that because I asked, I mean, my dad was an elder in the church. Mm. He was a presiding overseer. Uh, which meant the other ones, other uh, elders were below him and there were ministerial servants below him. Um, And I remember asking him, well, how do you know if they really are? And it's like, well, you just have to trust because if they're not, you know, Jehovah will know. Like, but I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses have been around forever. They haven't met that 144,000 yet globally. And, and he was like, well, that's not for you to question. Mm. You just have to trust mm-hmm. that Jehovah is and who isn't. And the only way we knew is uh, every year when we had our memorial service, which is when they passed the bread and the wine mm-hmm. around. If you were one of the anointed that were going to go to heaven, you would partake of the bread and the wine. If you weren't, you just passed it on to the next person. So the only way we knew if someone was of that anointed crowd is if you saw them take a bite of the bread and drink the wine. Who would make that choice if they were? That individual. Oh, they would just say, okay, I'm part of the one I know that I am. And would yes. take it. Huh. Interesting. Self, self-identified. Yes. That's got to create an interesting um, elitism within the religion, I would think. Yeah. You know, because there is a lot of elitism with that because people, for whatever reason, kind of thought that those people were specialists, like, oh, the anointed, and they're going to get to go to heaven. Um, and if you were an elder or you were an elder's family, you were like looked at as someone above hmm. the others, you know. Hmm. And if you were an elder's child, you wanted to make sure that you were associating with the right people. Mm-hmm. You know, just not any other Jehovah's Witness was good enough to hang out with because they might be bad association because they may not follow all the little intricate rules to the mm-hmm. T and they would be bad association. So you wouldn't want to see yourself with them, but you'd want to be friends with the elder or his family. Or we had people that dedicated their life to going door to door and we called those people pioneers. Mm-hmm. Um, we would also have people that would move around the country and serve in different congregations where they were struggling to have um, enough participation or they're trying to grow the congregation. So you would move and work where the need was greater or spread yourself out that way. So we had um, full-time pioneers. We had part-time pioneers. We had people who would uh, volunteer to go live and work at Bethel, which was uh, the headquarters in New York and where they did all their publishing and Uh, printing of the articles and getting the word out from the governing body. So if you were a Bethelite, that was even a different level of elitism. So there's a lot of class structure to it um, that you don't really know about if you're not in it. And Mm -hmm. sometimes even when you're in it, you just think that it's normal and you don't look at it that way. But reflecting back after you leave, um, you can definitely see the different layers and structures. Yeah, absolutely. So what was it that was your turning point of choosing out of this religion? Um, 
you know, I, I had a lot of influence from the kids that I went to school with who really felt bad for me because I didn't get to do any sports. I couldn't be in the school play. I couldn't, I couldn't go to any of the parties. I couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And so, um, when I got to be the age that I could drive and I went, I had my first job working at a grocery store as a cashier and some of the people that I knew through school or my coworkers who were my age started just asking me questions. They weren't doing it to be rude or demeaning, but they were like, listen, you know, why can't you do this kind of stuff? You know, we'd love to invite you to a party, but you always say no. And Hmm. why can't you play sports? And so they started asking me a lot of questions. And when the answers that I gave them, which were the answers I got, they didn't just go, oh, okay, that made sense. They started pushing back and saying, well, that doesn't make sense. What they would give me counter questions Hmm. that I didn't have answers to. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know. Yeah. And the only response I got back from my dad was, well, that's why you shouldn't be hanging around people who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses because they don't understand. And they're going to start getting you to think in ways that you shouldn't be thinking because mm. it's going to be your downfall. And you you just don't need to hang out with them. But I never got the answers to the questions that they were asking me. And when I got into high school, probably like my sophomore year, we got a new um, guidance counselor who was also our psychology teacher. Hmm. And normally studying psychology was kind of questionable. They wouldn't want you to study psychology, but I kind of convinced my dad that I needed to take it because there was no other elective course available. And I was trying to graduate early and I needed it. And so I wanted to take it when really it was, I really liked that teacher and he was asking me questions and teaching me thinking skills that I hadn't been taught before. Hmm. So I was curious about it. And I used to meet with him during my study hall and ask him a lot of questions. And I grew up in a small town. It had maybe like 400 people. Um, The elementary and high school was all in one building because I was 35 people in my graduating class and it was the largest class in the school. Where did you grow up? Where did you you grow um, up? At this time in my life where I went to school from fourth grade to 12th, I was in Iowa, a small town in Iowa, uh, a small rural town. And, um, you know, of course, everybody in the school knew who the Jehovah's Witnesses were because there weren't very many of us. And so the teachers used to feel bad for us. Um, (laughs) So they would give us a little extra mentoring. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just started talking to him and he kind of taught me some critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. And then. when I was offered a scholarship to college and I had to turn that down because higher education was not encouraged and actually around in, in the Jehovah's Witness religion. And I wanted to go to school and I couldn't accept the scholarship. So it went to someone else. Um, me not realizing that, okay, well, when you're 18, you don't need your parents' permission to go. And there's things called student loans and there's ways for you to you know, none of that had been taught to me. I didn't know about it. And so I just let it happen. And then um, I started to feel like this was just not adding up to me. Um, And then of course, the big downfall came when I met someone, um, I met a guy that I was interested in, I was 18. And I started sneaking around so that I could see him. I became a very good liar and learned how to live a double life at the age of 18. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I could 
see this person. And as most young adults do, I had sex outside of marriage and they found out. Mm. And so uh, I was publicly removed and eventually got to the point where I just didn't go anymore. And uh, I just decided it wasn't for me. Did they take you in front of the congregation when you say publicly? So a public reproof is where when when the elders hear that you've done something that's sinful, um, they will pull you into a judicial committee meeting, which is comprised of two to three elders, and they will ask you questions. And especially um, young women whose sin is a sexual nature, it is not uncommon for them to want to get every little detail repeated over and over. It's like disgusting. Yeah. Um, of course, you don't, you don't, you have don't to know. go into that. <laughs> you, don't, yeah, I just you, don't, you don't have to know that. So, yeah, I mean, once they decide um, that either you're repentant or you're not repentant, one of the things they don't feel like you're sorry enough, they will disfellowship you and you're cut off from the organization Hmm. or they will publicly reprove you, which means you sit in the, in the congregation while they, from the, from the platform say that, you know, you've committed a sin and that you are publicly reproved and people shouldn't talk to you for a period of time until they determine that you paid the price enough. Hmm. And so at the age of like 18, that happened to me. Um, and then I just decided that before they were going to disfellowship me later, because I, I just quit going and I was living my life like most people would think is normal. They were going to disfellowship me, but I decided I was going to disassociate myself hmm. because when you are disfellowshipped from the Jehovah's Witness organization, you are completely shunned from everyone, including your family which means they don't talk to you. You can't come over. They won't see you anymore. You are as good as dead to them. Hmm. They cut off all kinds of, any kind of support, whether it was financial support or emotional support or whatever. Mm -hmm. What I had been told at the time, this disassociation was new at the time. Hmm. And uh, what I was told was if you take the action that you choose to leave, everyone's going to still shun you, but your family can stay connected. If you wait and let us disfellowship you, then nobody's going to be able to talk to you. So I, I decided I'd do the disassociation because the hardest thing is losing your family, especially at that age, at that age. Right. Well, um, that was not true. What they told me was not true. And so even though I disassociated myself, the reaction from my family was actually worse than if I had been disfellowshipped because they were beside themselves that I would choose to leave. Mm. It was like, how dare you? Because now you have chosen to do this and now you have and you have turned your back on Jehovah. And you know, so now it was really easy for the finger pointing to start. Yeah. And the more they pushed at why it was my fault, the more I didn't want to come back. Yeah. So that had to be really challenging and hard to go through at that young age. Yeah. So what I did is I moved away. I I wanted to start fresh. I didn't want to be around any of those people that I knew. I didn't want to, I just didn't want to think about it anymore. So um, I moved to Tennessee. Mm. Um, they followed me to oh, Tennessee. Really? Your family, uh, my family did? My family moved to Tennessee. 
Um, they were trying to save me and keep mm. me, you know, bring me back, get me to change my mind. Um, you know, between them and, and the elders there, you know, you almost get stalked. I mean, they would constantly call or follow mm. you around and see what you were doing and who are you talking to and what are you doing? And, you know, my, I would constantly get phone calls about changing my mind. And so I moved again, you know, I moved, I moved to uh, Alabama and moved with a, a girlfriend of mine that I met through work and lived down there for a while. And um, I got laid off while I was there and had a car accident. So I moved to Chicago where my mother's parents lived and they were not Jehovah's Witnesses. So I moved there with them. And I think that was part of my um, ability to move on is because I finally did have a little place where I could really learn about me and what was going on and how I wanted to move forward. I was very lucky that I had my grandparents to turn to because a lot of people that are in my situation have nobody to yeah. turn to. And life is hard enough uh, with a few people to support you with no one to support you. It sometimes has disastrous endings. So. Oh man, I bet. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think that for me, it's very eye-opening because I had no idea about a lot of those pieces and, you know, it sounds like a lot of, my goodness, a lot of trauma. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of high control, uh, mind control, and just no room to think or learn or grow. Um, no self-esteem or self-worth because there's no value. You certainly can't, can't think. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what they always tell you is you'll never make it outside the organization. If you leave, you won't make it because everybody outside the organization is controlled by Satan and all the demonic forces of the world. And so you won't know how to live and no one's going to help you because they're all evil. Mm. Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth because most of the people I met who are outside of the organization were very helpful to me yeah. and very loving and concerning. Now, you aren't given life skills, so you make a lot of mistakes. You aren't taught. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, you you really aren't taught how to function at all. You're not taught how to manage finances or how to get a job because the focus wasn't on the jobs or going to school or building your life like most people. The focus was on making sure that you do everything, share your gifts within the organization. Everything was about giving your money and your gifts to the organization so that you could help spread Jehovah's word so you could save as many people as possible before Armageddon. And because Armageddon is always around the corner, it's just around the corner, you don't want to focus on material things or bettering yourself because none of that's going to matter when Armageddon is coming and you're going to live in a paradise earth. Hmm. So a lot of fear so tactics. Fear tactics, very narcissistic behavior, mm -hmm. um, which unfortunately, when you're raised in a narcissistic environment and you're taught that type of thinking, you know, when you leave, that stuff is carried forward and you do sometimes have trouble moving forward. You don't know how to make friends. You don't know who to trust. You, mm -hmm. you don't know how to make a living. You have no education. So there are a lot of challenges to trying to move forward that people just don't innately know, mm -hmm. especially people who are raised in that religion. Now, if you were an adult that wasn't a Jehovah's Witness and you lived a life like most people, and as an adult, you become Jehovah's Witness and then you leave, 
you at least have some of those basic skills that you learned. But Mm -hmm. for people who are children or raised in that environment, it can be pretty traumatic. Yeah. This is kind of a, a odd question. I'm curious, in your experience, did you witness a lot of women choosing or having abusive partners? I would say that a lot of people in the organization do have abusive families. So just because of everything that you're sharing, it it just, I wonder if that is a common thing, especially for women to choose that type of behavior in a partner, thinking Mm -hmm. it's safe. And and in all reality, it's very abusive. Yes. And the, the sad thing is there's a lot of sexual abuse and a lot of domestic violence. Hmm. Um, I'm not going to say it's all, all of, of all of the people there, because that's not true, but there is a lot of it and a lot of it gets swept under the rug. A lot of it doesn't get reported because they want to handle things within the judicial committee, within the organization. So you are not supposed to report any of this to the police ever Hmm. because you bring shame on Jehovah. Hmm. So you let the elders handle the situation. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for children, and I'm not going to say it's just female children, um, could be male or female children and women who are sexually abused or have domestic violence and you go to the elders, what you are is, well, what did you do? Hmm. You know, maybe you aren't giving your husband enough of enough sex or your dues. You're not being a a good wife, Mm -hmm. or maybe you are um, speaking up too much. Maybe are you not an obedient wife? Are you not an obedient child? Hmm. It's always put back to you. And if you were a better wife or if you were a better child, you know, that wouldn't happen to you. Hmm. So a lot of times people don't even bother because you're ashamed. Mm -hmm. And as I told you, the questions that they ask you, especially for someone like me, 17, 18 years old, when they keep asking you the questions about what happened and what did you do and why did you do this? And it's just very intimate that you don't want to talk about it. So people don't go and say anything because they don't Mm -hmm. want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. They don't, a lot of times the women have the punishment and the guys are just, nothing happens. Hmm. And I didn't realize how widespread this was until I left. I was gone many years before I started to help people. I was Hmm. gone for probably over 25 years before I started helping other people who had been Jehovah's Witnesses because I didn't want to identify myself with that anymore. I didn't want to think about it anymore. Yeah. I didn't, I just wanted to step away. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when those pivotal things happened to me and I started learning more about myself and I wanted to help others, I started to find out how widespread some of the stuff was. And it was even more disturbing and more upsetting to me. Um, because yeah. by then I had already been married, had children, not in the Jehovah's Witness organization, but mm-hmm. I had what I considered to be a normal life compared to what I had had. And mm-hmm. it just makes me sad to see how much stuff is swept under the rug. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about how when you when you st- stepped out and you're moving from Tennessee to Alabama to, which I love Tennessee and Alabama, by the way, to Chicago, and you're you know, finding your own way in the world, what did you do and what have you done since that has really helped you in healing those parts of you that need to be healed and moving to finding the beat of your own drum? Yeah. So initially, by the time I got to Chicago, I was probably 20. You know, I did a lot of happen around between 18 and 20 because between 18 and 20, I was running away from 
Mm-hmm. Right. I, I just wanted to be away. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of reckless behavior, you know, learning yeah. things, you know, hanging out with the wrong crowd, doing stuff like that, but um, nothing life-threatening or anything like that at that point. Um, when I got to Chicago and I wasn't running from anything anymore, and I kind of had what I considered to be a safe environment, I started to really start to reach out and I wanted that growth and I wanted to find out who I was. And the first thing I did when I stopped running is I wanted to have what I thought was normal. Mm -hmm. So I established normalcy first for me. And that was, I wanted to get a job. I wanted to have a car and I wanted to figure out how to make friends, right? That sense of community, because when you're in that organization, there's a huge sense of community. Now, not it's really surface community. It's mm-hmm. really not deep friendships like you're led to believe. It's just that you all have something in common and yeah. you can't associate with anybody else. So you become each other's friends and acquaintances because that's all you have. Mm-hmm. It's not true friendship. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make friends and have a job and have my place of my own and just maybe take some classes at the junior college. So I did things that made me feel like I had a life. So I established routines that made it feel like I had a life. You know, I saw everybody going to work. So I got a job, get a job, you get a car. And then you have nicer things. You start buying clothes. You start going to concerts and doing things that you didn't do before. Mm -hmm. So that was the first step. And that was just very surface level. And then I got married. And I had children. And like most people who uh, don't know themselves and haven't really recovered from being in a high control religion, um, I didn't make a good choice um, in a partner. Mm -hmm. And so I got divorced and I was a single parent and um, still working. Uh, I had a a career working downtown in corporate real estate. (coughs) Excuse me. So I took... um, you know, leadership classes and self-improvement classes and seminars that they would send me on. So along the way, as the years went by, I was picking up skills because of my job or um, interests that I had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I did take classes at the junior college and expanded my my world a little bit that way. Um, and I met another individual that I married like eight or nine years after I got divorced, thinking I made a better choice. But mm-hmm. even though I, you know, I became Catholic for a while. Oh, really? And so I um, went from one frying pan to the other, right? Just a little different. Mm-hmm. But um, I spent several years in, in the Catholic religion, raised my kids that way, sent them to school in the Catholic school. Um, and then like most organized religions, you know, they disappoint after a while and you start, the veil comes off and you start to see behind the veil and, and it, it, I left, but, um, it was after my divorce from my second husband that I really, really sat. Now that's probably been about 12 years ago or 12 or more years ago now, but it was after that second divorce, um, my son, a drug addiction. So I had to to work through that. My daughter was away at college. So I was an empty nester for real for the first time. I was living by myself, divorced the second time, children were gone. Son was a a, a drug addict. And I, I stopped and said, 
you know, I may have left the religion and I know that that's not the answer. I'm not going to go back, but I haven't really done a lot to figure out who I am and why does this stuff keep happening? Why can't I find the keys to normalcy and happiness? And how do I really move forward? Because I really really haven't been happy. I've been existing, but I'm really not happy. And I want to find out how to do that. And um, that was when I met um, some other people who had been Jehovah's Witnesses themselves. And we kind of started talking to each other about what were we doing. And, you know, the group of people that I connected with, they really didn't have a and they didn't really seem to be doing any better than I did. But mm. I really wanted to find out, well, how can, how can I really connect those last pieces? I had been to counseling, you know, because early on... Um, when I left and, and realized that things weren't um, as easy as I thought they were going to be when I left, um, because the sound of leaving always is great, right? I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm going to leave. Yay, I'm free. Right. I, don't, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And no support and no money. Um, I did try to commit suicide. Mm. And so um, it's probably the age of 21. Mm. So I started to see a therapist and I had seen a few therapists and they get you so far. Mm-hmm. But when they haven't lived in that type of high control environment, a narcissistic religion, um, abusive relationships and families within the organization, and they don't understand the mind control, mm-hmm. um, they can only get you so far because mm-hmm. they haven't they haven't lived it. So um, I met a group of people, and the person who started the Empowered Ex Jehovah's Witnesses private group on Facebook. And I started to talk to them and do some of the programs that they have that help people rewrite their, their minds, reprogram their minds. Um, and then I started doing my own personal development and I came up with a plan on why, how I could move, move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after a lot of growth and a lot of uh, learning, I have broken it down into four things. Um, to know yourself, trust yourself, teach yourself, and love yourself. Mm, I love that. It's a four-step process. Now, there's a lot of things that you have to do, but when I really boiled it down to me, those were the four things that you have to do. And knowing yourself is because when you were in the religion, you didn't really do anything for yourself. You didn't really know who you were. You didn't know what you believed because you weren't allowed to question or follow your own beliefs. You just had to do what you were told Mm -hmm. and follow what you were told. You weren't allowed to ask questions. You weren't allowed to broaden your horizons and read other things or go to school. So you were just a little sheep that followed everyone else. Mm -hmm. So you really have to, to know who you are. And that takes some time. It takes time. It takes reflection. It takes a little bit of awareness and clarity. Um, And I have a lot of people who say, well, how do you do that? And it's like, well, you have to sit in quiet and you have to really trust what you find inside because your answers are all inside yourself. Mm -hmm. You just were never allowed to focus on yourself. You were never allowed to listen to that little intuition that you had inside that inner knowing Mm -hmm. that we all have. Mm -hmm. And so that's where my second step of teaching yourself comes into play because you get that reflection, you get the clarity, 
um, you get the awareness by teaching yourself, being open-minded. You, you, you weren't allowed to be open-minded. You had small minds then because you weren't allowed to question. You weren't allowed to go to um, college and broaden your, your knowledge. You weren't allowed to be with people outside of the organization. So you couldn't see things from a different perspective. You only saw their perspective, the one that they wanted you to see, the one, things they wanted you to hear. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can't grow that way. You're kind of kept in a, in a darkness. You're kept in a box. Yeah. So opening yourself up to personal growth and allowing yourself to th- see things from different perspectives and realizing that someone else's perspective doesn't have to work for you, but it doesn't make it wrong. Mm-hmm. But looking at things from different perspectives allows you to grow. It allows you to have empathy for others. It allows you to have compassion for others. Um, it allows you to, to see things differently. And, and maybe you don't change your mind then, but it's okay to change your mind down the road after you've talked to a few people. Um, maybe you change your mind about something, or maybe someone sheds a little bit of light on it, but you need to teach yourself a lot of different things before you can find out what it is you really believe. Mm-hmm. Because if you haven't looked at other perspectives, you don't know what you believe. Mm-hmm. So knowing yourself a little better by teaching yourself some things is very crucial in becoming authentic and setting that foundation. Mm-hmm. And when you start to learn enough about that, that's where that third step of learning to trust yourself comes in. If you trust yourself and you know what you believe in, then you become anchored and you wouldn't easily be swayed by people. Um, Before you know who you are and what you believe and what your purpose is and why you're here, what your gifts are to share with other people, you could be swayed around like, you know, a a leaf in the wind. Mm -hmm. But if you are grounded in what you know, what you believe, and you start to trust yourself, then other people will start to trust you too. Mm -hmm. And you can become more confident and more courageous. You'll recognize that courage that you have within when you start to trust yourself. And people equate being courageous with big things, but being courageous isn't necessarily doing anything big or spectacular or being a superstar or superhuman, Mm -hmm. but it's being consistently authentic and living your truth the way you believe it mm-hmm. and being consistent in that every day. Um, you were courageous enough to walk away from that high control religion. Mm-hmm. You were courageous enough to walk away from that abusive relationship or marriage. You were courageous enough to find out what you believe. Don't stop being courageous. Mm-hmm keep taking that step. You know, the, the journey is where you find your joy. It's not the destination, but it's the journey there. So be courageous to take that next step. You already took the first step take the next one. And then the next one. And the one after that, mm-hmm. that's being courageous. And so if you can be courageous and trust yourself, loving yourself comes next. And once you love yourself and you live from the heart, and you show heart-centered qualities in everything that you do, if, you're, if you show love, care, compassion, kindness, dignity, honor, courage, those are qualities of the heart. And when you put that out and show gratitude, for you aren't taught in our organization to be grateful for anything. 
Mm-hmm. You are just told you should be grateful mm-hmm. and that you should appreciate the kindness that, that Jehovah is showing you. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's always in fear of making sure that you do everything that, that he wants you to do so that you can survive. When you get out of that uh, flight or um, fear, mm-hmm. you know, fight or flight, mm-hmm. um, when you get away from that and you can really start living from gratitude, you get so much more abundance in so many ways. Um, doesn't have to be monetary, but it could be the type of people that you bring close enough to you. When you, when you love yourself enough to know that it's okay to set boundaries, it's okay to say no, it's okay to change your mind. And by the way, it's okay to fail. Be courageous enough to fail mm-hmm. because every failure is just a lesson. It's not something to beat yourself about. Um, you know, you just, you just have to take that next step. The other thing that I tell people, um, it's very detrimental when you first leave is that has always been your identity. Mm -hmm. Always identified yourself as Mormon or Scientologist or Jehovah's witness. You have to be open to change because you can't stay the same. You can't think the same and hang out with the same and always focus on that religion and what they did to you or what they still think, or what are they doing now and Mm -hmm. move forward. You're still anchored by them. They're still controlling your thoughts and your emotions. So you have to realize that you outgrew them and they're never going to understand you because you think differently now and you act differently now. And it's okay to outgrow your friends, it's okay to outgrow your family. And just because they're your friends or your family doesn't give them a license to mistreat you. It's not okay to be shunned. It's not okay to cut off mm-hmm. and punish you because you want to think differently or feel differently. Yeah. So stop, stop paying attention to that because where you put your focus and your energy, that becomes your world. Mm-hmm. Stop focusing on what they're doing now or what they're going to do next or what they think about you or what they say about you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So stop watching the videos about what they're doing now or get on those uh, websites. And we all know they have them. They bash that religion or bash those people. You know, don't give that any attention or focus. Don't let them give you emotional control or blackmail anymore. Yeah. Don't, you know what they're going to say. You know what they're going to do because you lived it. Mm-hmm. Don't be surprised when they do it, but don't give it any weight. Mm-hmm. Just take your power back. Yeah. Now you co-authored a book. What was the title of that book again? That book is called Fear to Freedom. Fear to Freedom. Stories of Triumph After Leaving a High Control Religion. And we'll make sure and link that because you said it's available on Amazon, correct? It is. Beautiful. And you have another book that you're currently writing? Yes. I'm in process of writing the book. It's changed its title a couple of times, but I finally decided since I'm a heart um, math mentor and coach now, I'm certified by heart math. Love, love everything that they they say and do. Mm -hmm. My book is titled um, Living Between the Beats. Mm, Beautiful. Living, Living and Leading with Heart Coherence. So So how long have you been um, doing the heart math? Um, I've been doing life coaching and leadership development for a while, but last year I became certified. I have two certifications with them now. Fantastic. Um, I might go for a third, but you know, I want to 
with the two that mm-hmm. I have now. Um, it's really um, awesome to see how living through heart coherence can just help so many people in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they have 35 years of scientific research that backs mm-hmm. what they do. Um, they have, yeah, they over, have fascinating research. I love the research. They do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my favorite people that I heard about heart math was Greg Braden, mm-hmm. Joe Dispenza, mm-hmm. and Bruce Lipton. Those guys were strongly influenced me um, during my personal growth and development. I still listen to their stuff. Um, and I kept hearing Greg Braden talk about heart math. And I'm like, what? What is that? And I started, I couldn't get enough of it because I've always been a believer that your heart knows. Mm -hmm. Your heart knows. You have that inner knowing and that inner wisdom. You know, the mind thinks, but the heart knows. And when we learn to follow our heart, it just opens so much. For those that don't know what heart coherence is, would you mind just touching on that for a minute? Sure. So what heart math is all about is helping people build their own personal resilience or having a resilience advantage, which means that you are um, learning how to prepare for, respond to, and recover from challenges or stress in day-to-day life um, by building your own personal energy and changing your baseline so that when things happen, because you know they will, every day is not going to be per, per, um, perfect. Um, you have this ability by connecting with your heart and your brain so that they are in coherence with each other. There's more neurons in your heart than there is in your brain. Mm-hmm. And when a fetus develops, the heart develops. So they speak about the heart brain now. Neurocardiologists talk about the heart brain. So many people have heard about, you know, the brain and the heart and the brain and the gut and, you know, the mind. Everybody just assumes that the mind is first. But through scientific research, we have found that actually it's the signals from the heart that come first. The signals from the heart go to the brain and then the brain responds to the heart signals. And then the gut feels, the body responds. So the heart leads, the body follows. So when you can work with rejuvenating emotions, replenishing emotions from the heart, you can activate more DHEA in your body, which is the good things, right? It's Mm -hmm. anti-aging. It helps build your immune system. It, you know, relieves stress. Uh, It gives you clarity and focus. Uh, You become more kind and caring and compassionate. And you can respond to, it's almost like you have this Teflon shield. When, when things do happen, you can stop yourself in the moment from feeling those depleting emotions and bring yourself to a state of calm or ease. And then you can also replace those depleting emotions with re- rejuvenating ones like love, care, compassion, and kindness. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. One of my favorite things about the heart that I learned years ago was about heart transplants, how patients with heart transplants would have memories, taste, smells that they never had before, foods that all of a sudden they started craving that they hadn't craved before. And that was always, that was such a fascinating thing with that mini brain that does reside within the heart. So Yes, that's very true. And you know, what they have found is that you get to, you can choose your emotions and you can learn how to rewrite 
some of the programs that you've placed in your own way, and you can replace. Um, so what happens is um, when an event happens, it's the way that you respond to that emotion, and if you or to the event with emotion. Mm-hmm. It's so if you have always responded to something with a stress emotion, you can reprogram yourself to replace that feeling of stress or anxiety with a different replenishing emotion mm-hmm. over time. And heart math has some tools and techniques that you can use, and they have um, a lot of wonderful mentors and, and guides and coaches across the country that can help people learn those tools and techniques and help you learn how to rewrite those programs that we have placed in our, in our mind and, and choose different emotions. Cause we actually get to choose our emotions. Mm. That's what uh, humans have the benefit of that. The rest of the animal kingdom doesn't is we have the emotions. We get to choose our emotion and we can retrain our minds. You know, the power of choice is always a beautiful thing that we have in any situation with a, a lot of different dynamics for sure. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate all your wisdom and you sharing your story. And is there anything else that you would like to share? Oh boy, just, you know, be you, be authentic. Don't be afraid to try something new. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, your past is part of who you are. And so always remember to embrace who you are, all of who you are. Because if you don't face what the past was and you accept what it was and understand that it helped make you who you are, but it doesn't define who you are and it doesn't determine what you can become or who you will become or what you can do. Um, And just approach life with as much love and compassion as you can. Be grateful every single day and um, love those around you. Mm, Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. And I'll make sure and link your information down in the show notes as well as how people can get that book as well. Perfect. So thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate you. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Me too. This has been fun. I love zoom. Thank goodness for zoom that we can exactly people all over. (laughs) (laughs) I used to hate it at the beginning of COVID, but I kind of got used to it. Now I like it. Yes, it is. It's a beautiful tool to connect. It is. Well, thanks again, Cindy. Super, super interesting, wasn't that? I had no idea about some of those things with Jehovah's Witnesses. And I am, you know, this is what happens when you live in the Utah Mormon bubble. I definitely didn't know very much about other, about Jehovah's Witnesses. And so that was really interesting. And I so appreciated her, her insight and the things that she's learned. And I will make sure that I post her information down below and where you can grab that book, Fear to Freedom. And as always, wherever you are in the world, I hope you know that you are not alone. And your invitation this week is to have a little bit more courage of what can you do to step more and more in just a baby step of stepping more into who you are and who you are wanting to be. What is that tiny little step that you can make this week of following more and more of your heart? And as always, sending you all so much love.